Welcome, everyone. So we'll start with our um, recitations. I'll set a motivation, and then we'll begin with the review of Chapter 6, starting on verse 40. So let's cultivate our motivation for this time together this morning. And I'm going to read to you the very first words that Venerable Children spoke when she started the chapter on fortitude, chapter 6 of Shantideva, Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. When you think about people you can't stand, you have an image in your mind. Does that image change when you think about them at different times? Or does it remain pretty consistent? If we're honest with ourselves, it remains pretty consistent. We've assigned them a personality, or more precisely, a caricature. And that is all they are, all they ever will be, and I have no choice about how to feel in response to their actions. If they've harmed me, they are harmful and horrible, and anyone in their right mind would hate them. They'd either beat them up or they'd get away from them. And that's how we think of them in our mind. We call up those same emotions. So we're hooked by our caricature of that person, and that controls us. And even if we meet the person who is impermanent, every single thing they say or do is bad, harmful, and disgusting because they would never do anything other than that. How we feel is completely justified, we think. We think it's accurate. We think that who they are is not a conditioned phenomena, not impermanent, not empty of true existence, can't be changed or rehabilitated, there's no way I could feel anything different. Those words may be shocking to hear, but if we look honestly, we have had the experience of thinking like this, But now, having met the Dharma, we're learning ways to transform our mind from this prison of thinking in that way that keeps our heart and mind locked and estranged from others. 
And instead, as we continue to hear the teachings, reflect on them, discuss them, meditate on them, over and over and over again, we can learn to identify the true enemy, the self-centered thinking based on ignorance, in turn, our habitual responses to ones that are informed by wisdom and compassion. In the words of Geshe Yeshe Tobden, one of Venerable Children's teachers, he says, This text teaches us the practices of a bodhisattva, it was written by Shantideva for our benefit. He left it to us with the same love as a mother writing her will for her child before her death. We are fortunate to be able to listen and grow acquainted with this text. So with the wish to continue to train as a bodhisattva with the aim of full awakening for the benefit of all. Let's rejoice in the opportunity to again listen, reflect, and discuss these profound teachings. So I don't know about you, but when I reread Venerable Children's introduction to this chapter, it sort of made me weak in the knees. And it's true what she was saying. We've all had that experience. And now we're having this extraordinary opportunity of again reviewing these teachings, which I'll be doing for the rest of my life. And so what I chose to do this morning is I'm pulling out um, parts of Venerable's teachings from this, from these few verses that we'll look at this morning and the ones that really struck me in a powerful way. So we'll look at that. I don't know how far we'll get this morning, maybe not very far. Maybe we'll do two verses, I don't know. But uh, whatever we do do, um, I think, because it's Shantideva, through Venerable Children, uh, we can't lose out. So I'm not sure where I found this quote from Venerable Children, um, but she said this at some point uh, as she's been teaching this text. Unless we consistently remember the faults of the self-centered thought, studying this text is not going to make any sense to us. We'll just think that Shantideva is totally crazy. And what he's telling us is just the opposite to the self-centered thought. So she said it's important every single time that we sit down to study or meditate on this text that we focus on the disadvantages of the self-centered thought. Every single time. 
Well, my self-centered thought has gotten in the way of that instruction. So, <laughs> we just keep trying to do it. So there's questions posted online, so some of our friends online might be able to respond too. Um, I thought we'd start with that, by reviewing what are the disadvantages of the self-centered thought. And for this first question, since answers might be quite short, maybe if you just call them out and I'll repeat them for our friends online. Okay? Dis disadvantages, self-centered thought. Makes me miserable. Makes me miserable. Lonely. Gives rise to fear. Protectiveness. Protectiveness. Hyper focused on just me. Well, isn't that what's important? <laughs> Difference? Indifference. Oh, yeah. Caring less for others. Inconsiderate. Selfish. Selfish. Seeing less happiness around us. Seeing less happiness. Seeing less happiness around us. Yeah. Makes life boring. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> Makes life boring. Yeah, it does. Sorry. Competitiveness, absolutely. Get out of my way. Brings all kinds of afflictions and negative actions. Narrow. This mental state is not our best friend, but interestingly enough, in my experience, I've been acting as if it has been. We're tight. We're real tight. <laughs> so I think Venerable's uh, instruction is very worthwhile doing every time we encounter this text, maybe every time we encounter another sentient being, that would probably be the best. But we're, do we're trying to do our best, and so these reviews of these disadvantages are just simply helpful. Okay. Was there anything showing up online back there, Monsal? Closed-minded, breeds depression, creates enemies, uh, I stop caring about everything good, and makes the mind extremely narrow. Keeps one always bumping against others. Yeah. So I thought I'd, I'd call on our resident scholar meditation teacher, just to hear it from your words. So if you could give Geshe-la um, the microphone somewhere. Geshe-la. So at what point are we going to be truly free from this affliction of anger? What point? So the question was, at what point... Are going we going to be, to be finished with anger? It's done. Oh. Never again. 
finish with anger is equal to finish with all the afflictions. Mm -hmm. And that also includes finishing with their roots, from their roots, from their seeds. Otherwise, we won't ever be done with it if we keep popping up. So you begin with understanding emptiness and then internalize it and then go through the process of what His Holiness calls this progressive uh, process of uh, internalization, which begins, of course, with an intellectual understanding of how it is rooted and what it is caused by and understanding it correctly and then internalize it in the sense of putting it to a probe in a sitting meditation, where you may begin with seeing a glimpse of what it feels like without it, or what it feels like having, having uh, overcome it. That's a glimpse, a hope that yes, if you put effort, you will progress on it. Then with that inspiration, when you see it again consistently, consistently, and consider the defects of anger together with what it is rooted in, etc., then at every sitting you'll be able to have that gut feeling of how it is rooted, how it, is, uh, how it can be uh, uh, overcome, but not. But once you come out of it in the world, you lose it. But then you keep on doing that. But every time you see it, you really hit that at your gut level. That is contrived experience. The first was flesh of a possible experience. The second was contrived experience in that if you make effort, you're able to really hit that. But not when you're out of cushion. Now when you keep on doing that, then later when you come out of it meditation, a slight trigger, a slight indication can get you back straight to that gut feeling even while walking around and whatnot. So that's the stage when it has developed into uncontrived experiential uh, stage. Now you have to persist on it and then deepen it, strengthen it, then it will be able to hit the bottom of it and then be done. So long story short, you are fully free of anger when you become an arhat. Thank you, Geshe-la. I had an idea that I could just raise questions the whole session and give them to geshe <laughs> uh, It's probably the smartest thought I've had. <laughs> Thank you, geshe It's not going to happen anytime soon. We've got a long journey ahead. But we're learning the tools, and we can support each other in this. So I would imagine I made some of you pretty mad when I put on one of the questions, the question, well, here's why I did it, first of all. In the room, we speak English. For most of my life, I only sadly speak English, and when I speak to English speakers, and all the time, there's misunderstanding that can happen. We're speaking the same language. We come to the conversation with preconceived ideas. We've been thinking about the topic for three days. The other person is just meeting it for the first time in those three seconds. And we are wondering why we can't communicate with each other. And we often talk in code. Even someone we know very well, we talk in code and they have no idea what we're talking about. 
And this brings um, struggles and difficulties. So I thought we'd better start with a very clear idea of this is what's going to maybe make you mad or made you mad. The, the question, what is anger? Now I think we need to hear people with a microphone. What is it? Okay, we're going to start with Aiden, and then we'll go to Venerable Tarpa. So if we get a microphone there. I believe anger is kind of a gross form of attachment in which you kind of have a certain view of the way that things should be, and the world doesn't respond in that same distorted way. You know, so you stub your toe and you get angry because you're attached to your body feeling nice and pleasurable and your toe not hurting or someone yells at you and you're attached to that feeling of not being yelled at and you're attached to yourself. How could they yell at me, you know? I see anger as the mind crystallizing around pretty much what you said, uh, not getting what it wants in some way, shape or form. And in the process of doing that, perceives things that actually either aren't there or you're distorting or you're magnifying. I mean, you're just, the mind is so narrow. Uh, I mean, the way we define it, I think is quite accurate. Um, it's a mind that either projects or inflates the negativities of a situation, a person or whatever, whatever it is. But the, but the experience of it is, much more, you know, more like, can be quite intense. I mean, when you read that first thing, I don't actually think I've had too many experiences like what you started this teaching with, but I did when I was gone with this TV character that I have difficulty with. And I really can see that now, like, you know, like every time I think of that person, it's just this characterization that I actually have had a moments of hatred for. And I'm like, whoa. And, you know, it's very hard to break through that because that shows how out of whack the mind is. You know, you're just, you've made this, it's kind of like when Hillary Clinton was running for president. You never knew who Hillary Clinton was. All I saw was this cardboard cutout that people hated. And that cutout was always the same, this character people made. Thank you. Venmokunga, and then we'll go to the Buddhist definition, which you're all hitting on. It's very dualistic. It's something's bad, and I'm good, and that's wrong, and I'm right, and I'm the victim. I'm innocent, and they're hurting me, they're attacking me. So the world just becomes black and white. Yeah. Exactly. So the Buddhist definition is very helpful, and you're all hitting on it. But this really gets very precise when we start looking at definitions of mental factors. So it's the mental factor being unable to bear a person, an object, a situation, an idea, harbors ill will towards it or wishes to harm it. It covers a range of emotions, including, and this is not a full list, but it includes annoyance, irritation, frustration, spite, belligerence, resentment, hatred, rage. Now, I know that before I met 
the teachings, the Dharma teachings, I would often say, and I had all, I knew everyone who would say this, you know, something like, well, no, I'm not angry. I'm just really irritated. Or, I'm not angry. I'm just so frustrated with that person. I'd like to just, or I'm not angry. I'm just really annoyed. Or, I'm not angry. No way. I don't get angry. I'm just really ticked off. <laughs> so we have these ways. I have these ways. Maybe you did too of really not addressing the fact that I am really angry. It helps to really face that and see that all these other words, and there's many more. I I wasn't going to bore you with the list of 117 synonyms for anger. It might be worth looking at it, though. So here's the next step, though, before we even get to verse 40. Maybe we'll get there. No. Um, the forerunner to anger is an unhappy mind, discontent, and inappropriate attention. So let's take a look at what that is, and then we'll share some examples. So inappropriate attention exaggerates the negative qualities of a person, or an object, or a situation, or an idea and projects negative qualities that are simply not there. They're not there. That's why it's called inappropriate attention. The new word is distorted attention. Is that the latest? Anyway, those two describe this mental state. So to break the ice, because this is another question I asked you to think about, I'll give you an example from Venerable Children's book, Working with Anger. It's a great example. It just gets to it right away. If you're having trouble coming up with examples, which I doubt that you would. Dave walks into the office one morning and his colleague, who is preoccupied, doesn't greet him. And he thinks, this person is unfriendly and rude. And based on this inappropriate attention that projected meaning and motivation onto the other person's action, he becomes irritated. His internal irritation leads to external action. And Dave makes a sarcastic remark, which hurts his colleague, and she in return snaps back at him. So an instant of inappropriate attention, boom, and off we go, colliding into others. They get triggered. Off it goes. So I wonder if anyone would like to be brave enough for a few people to share an experience from your life where inappropriate attention led you to be angry and how it went from there. I'll be the subject. (laughs) (laughs) So when I used to go visit my mom, I always am exposed to all this media that's quite charged and meant to charge you up. And at one point, I found myself watching this person who I think is quite brilliant. And I realized I was having hatred because this person is so good at what he does. And then now, when I lived with my mom, I had difficulty the whole time I was there with this person on the news because I always thought that, I always thought he knew exactly what he was doing. 
you know, and I, I mean, I think this thing about the caricature part, I just I couldn't ever get out of that box. And so what it does is it, it, it so somehow in there, I, because I was exposed to it all the time, even though I tried not to be, I couldn't ever get to a place of, Venerable was always saying, you need to have compassion. I never could get there. And this went on for over a year. I was really surprised with myself that I, you know, now that I'm here, it's easier for me to kind of back away and realize, you know, just not, because when I was exposed to this all the time, it's really hard to step back and get that gap that you need to be able to look at yourself and see where am I thinking wrong? And mm-hmm. I tried all these things, but they never really worked. And so I actually just didn't, wasn't able to move that. The best I could do is just stay away from it. And it, it what ended up happening in this, this whole scenario about um, what I consider to be brainwashing mm-hmm. of my mother is mm-hmm. that, and I think this is the thing that made it so hard. It's like you see the harm that's happening by somebody's actions and you can't do anything about it and you can't make any inroads. I, I spent a year, over a year, year and a half talking about things. And then I, at one point I just had to give up. I realized I can't discuss this anymore because there's no openness. There's no change. It's like it would always snap back right to what I consider to be propaganda and by definition actually is considered by experts to be propaganda. You know, but what it, what it did to my mind was it was kind of unbearable and I didn't get too far with it. So I saw that as a big lesson. I mean, I'd never experienced anything like this before. I don't ever remember sitting, watching, seeing anyone where I felt hatred. I, I shocked myself the first time that happened. I was just astounded because I, although anger is something I work with a lot, I don't really, I don't know. It's usually kind of towards inanimate things or situations. It's rarely towards people. So it was a big, I don't know, a big mess. Mm. It made a big mess. It made a lot of stress. I hope that answered your question. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. So this is a tough one. You going to go for it, Aiden? Okay. <laughs> um, so this is one that's kind of recent in my life because I'm only 20 years old, so I'm kind of just recovering from teenage angst. And, <laughs> and I grew up in a house with just my dad, and so coming into teenage years, it was almost every single thing he said triggered this thing in me that deepened this perspective that I had of him that was at times like extremely negative. Um, and it could just be something like a simple, how are you Aiden? Like, let's talk. And it would fuel this like aggression in me for some reason. Um, and it would just keep building and building until I had this negative caricature that I saw instead of an actual person who's my father and his actual actions. Um, but I definitely do relate to what Venerable Tarpa was saying about that distance being good for the mind because moving out of the house and has given me a really good opportunity to reflect on that and, you know, tell myself, I really do love my dad. And um, this view that I had was completely skewed and was self-made. 
How fortunate you are seeing this at the age of 20 and not 76 or whatever age. Thank you for sharing. And there's something to that old saying, distance does make the heart grow fonder. <laughs> yeah, I, when I look back, I clearly remember I was in South India and this event happened in Dharamsala with my teacher who, along with his two students, were killed, stabbed to death in Dhamsala because of the controversy. And I was uh, polishing my floor, uh, and all of a sudden a student came and informed me about it. I just could not help but feel very angry towards the, those who undertook that, knowing who my teacher was, how, how, uh, what do you call, down to earth he was, how sacrificing he was for the uh, benefit of the students, and how he really led us as a role model to look up to in terms of uh, how he lives and what he, he does, uh, how he t commits himself to the benefit of others, and have been so persistent in years in kind of really advising, advising, advising. So all of those came to me, and that made me more angry towards those who, who undertook that. And my, th my, word, my thoughts went, this is after becoming monks. <laughs> not before, not before that, not before, not when I was in my <laughs> Beatles <laughs> incarnation. <laughs> Because if that would have happened then, it's understandable, right? But after becoming a monk, having heard about anger being bad, but that incident in particular was kind of so unjustified, and that kind of triggered uh, anger, and that gave rise to so many thoughts of, oh, I wish I could be there to do these things. I wish I could be there and stop it, but stop it, but not, but, but, not by stopping to hurt others, even allowing myself to hurt them. I said, oh, this is so bad. Uh, deep down I was saying, I was empathizing my, with myself, yet at the same time saying, no, you cannot go this extent. But I saw it going that extent. And that was an eye-opener. Mm -hmm. Oh, I have a lot of work to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that story, Geshe-la. So inappropriate attention is like the big red flag, if we can catch that. And so I really want to pay attention to that and try and be alert to that. And I want to have the same fear of that mental state, even just inappropriate attention, that I do for cougars. I am profoundly afraid of cougars. It's probably to the point of being uh, an unhealthy obsession beyond what's realistic. But I've heard so many stories. I used to live in Alberta. There were cougar attacks that were published in the news a lot. Though I'm way more afraid of a cougar than a bear. Um, so when I go for a walk, sometimes I'll think I'll see something in the tree and this immediate fear comes up. I would like to have that fear reaction when I encounter, if I can catch that inappropriate attention, which is the gateway to getting angry. So it's a work in progress. Okay, we're going to start now, verse 40. 
And even if the fault were temporary, in they who are by nature reliable, it would still be incorrect to be angry, for this would be like begrudging space for allowing smoke to arise in it. So in this verse, we're looking at a person who we consider is probably just totally 100% reliable. They're just always going to be there for us. They're going to say the right things. They're going to follow through. They're going to have my back, all of that other stuff. So a lot of attachment going on there and unrealistic expectations. But this person is reliable. And then they slip up. And maybe they do something or say something that totally breaks our trust. Totally. We're mortified. How could this person have done this? They're so reliable. I count on this person. And then they're the worst of the worst. And boy, I better correct them because they're going down a slippery path. They're going to get angry this one time or let me down. It could happen all the time for them. So I've got to really, this is, you know, I've got to really blast them and show them what's right. They're going to just get nailed as soon as I see them because they need correction. And so Shantideva, of course, with all of our objections and reasons and yes buts steps in and says, you know, with wisdom, but hey, you know, this person is a sentient being. Sentient beings come under the power of afflicted mental states. They've created previous karma. They get swept up in it. So isn't your expectation for them to be like 100% there for you somewhat real, unrealistic? And it is. It's totally unrealistic. When we're in our sane mind, that's an unrealistic expectation to have of anybody. And then whose responsibility is it for this unrealistic expectation? And it's clearly mine. And then the other thing that Venerable pulls out in this verse is that, you know, we expect others to not be overpowered by their afflictions. We have that expectation running, I'm sure, moment by moment. We just expect people to do what we think we should, they should do. And so is it fair that we hold others to standards that we can't even hold ourselves to? That was a powerful statement when I read it. I don't really hold myself to that kind of perfection because I know I can't do it. So why in the world would I hold others to that? It's really um, ignorant thinking. And then she goes on to say, though, that, and this is an important point too, that uh, we shouldn't try and stuff our anger when it comes up. You heard about Geshe-la's explanation, how long we're going to be living with this mental state that will come and go. And so we're not, the, the goal is not to stuff our anger. Uh, the goal is not to pretend we're not angry. And in certain situations, we, we may still have to take action. But we have to take action once we've calmed ourselves down and we're no longer in an angry state. So I'd like to share with you a letter that I read in the New York Times last week. I've 
I've really trimmed it down for copyright purposes and all the rest. It's a stunning letter and it's a stunning example of someone being moved to do something. And when I've, I've read this letter several, several times now, and I don't see with my mind any anger coming from this person where when you hear the story, if you're just, if you're not a Dharma practitioner or even if you are actually, you might think this person would be so justified in being enraged. So justified. So the article was written by, is written by Dr. Celine Gounder. She's an infectious disease physician and epidemiologist. And she is the widow of the sports journalist Grant Wall, who just died recently while he was covering the big soccer thing in Qatar. So she writes, It was the end of that workday on Friday, December 9th, 2022. I was wrapping up a Zoom call when my phone started to vibrate with calls, text messages, emails. It was nonstop. My phone was just going crazy. Gabriel Marcotti ESPN journalist and also a longtime friend of Celine's and her husband's was trying to reach me from Qatar, where he was covering the World Cup alongside my husband, Grant Wall. I heard the words, Grant has collapsed in the stadium, in the stadium press box, and this happened at the end of a match. And he had heard that bystanders had started CPR on Grant, my husband. It wasn't until an hour later that I tracked down a doctor in the emergency department for an update. My grant had died. He was 49 years old. As soon as the news became public, rumors and disinformation began to spread. Amid seemingly inexplicable tragedy, there's an understandable reflex in all of us to grasp onto narratives that could possibly explain how something so shocking could occur. One minute he's covering the game, the next minute he's collapsed. Even those of us who love Grant did that in our grief. But soon, here's the part, strangers began blaming Grant's death on COVID-19 vaccines. A playbook that I know all too well at a move that I refuse to let stand. So because she's an epidemiologist and she's been speaking out throughout the whole COVID time, this is the tact that some people took. I knew that disinformation purveyors would blame Grant's death on COVID vaccine, and I knew what tactics they would use to do so. I also knew that debunking these people head-on in public, risks giving them the attention that they desperately crave and invites further trolling. But this situation was different from the many others I'd dealt with as an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist or while serving on the Biden-Harris Transition COVID Advisory Board. This was my grant, and I needed to know what happened to him. And I knew I had to share that information publicly. Pairing facts with empathy is the best way to disempower trolls. So in the days following Grant's death, look what she was able to do. I swallowed my grief. 
I worked to have Grant flown home for an autopsy. It was a Herculean task to overcome the various bureaucratic and logistical barriers, and I needed a lot of help. His autopsy was performed at the New York City Office of Chief Medical Examiner, which is staffed by some of the world's top pathologists and forensic scientists. I wanted his autopsy results to be unimpeachable. I got the preliminary results on December 13th. Grant's aorta, the large blood vessel carrying blood from his heart, had ruptured. Once I got the news, my every instinct was to protect the boy I met in college. I had to end the rumors and refocus my attention on Grant's legacy. So then she went on to give many, many interviews across many news stations. I'll shorten this up now. I didn't respond to disinformation or harassment on Substack or on social media. It was coming nonstop. I didn't reply to the emails that read, Now you understand that you killed your poor husband. And then there were a whole bunch of swear words directed at her. I've received these messages before, including rape and death threats. And that was all over the course of the pandemic. But receiving them about Grant, especially as the waves of anguish threatened to consume me, I knew I had to act. Vaccine disinformationists have cherry-picked data to support their claims, failing to note that genetic connective tissue disorders are important risk factors, and she goes on to explain that. So she pulls apart all of their arguments that are based on just mythical thinking. Grant will be remembered for his kindness, openness, and generosity. His legacy is his commitment to seeking truth through reporting, supporting human rights, and fighting for equality. I will continue to honor Grant by living out our shared values. I'm channeling my grief into something productive, protecting, protecting the public's health against those who would profit from the suffering of others. I don't see anger in this letter. I don't hear it. And just the way she's going to channel her grief is just amazing. So whenever we get angry, as you all know, I know it deeply, we all find ways of justifying our anger. Celine could have as she dealt with this tremendous loss. So I'm wondering if anyone would like to share the ways that you have justified your anger in the past. How did your effects of, how did your justification um, affect you? And how did it affect the other people involved in the situation? This is going to take some courage to. Okay. Sin. So this example is um, not too dramatic, um, but comes up a lot over and over again. I've worked with it a number of times, and it still comes up. Um, I think there's progress there, but not so much. Um, and so the situation is, I mean, it can come in many different forms, but so I live with a human being and a dog, and um, both of whom can sometimes inconvenience me or uh, ask me for things that I've um, 
you know, when I've set aside a period of time where some, I have to get something important done, something very important done. And I may have even told the human being, the dog really doesn't know um, <laughs> whether I tell her or not, um, that I need this time. And so David will come in anyway because he needs something and interrupt me. And even though I've worked with it before, it's as if in that moment I've never worked with it before. <laughs> and though the dog might come up to me and ask me for something, I don't get mad at her. <laughs> but I get mad with him. And what I think, and this really, I'm really so glad you asked this question, because even though I've thought about my self-centered mind, my self-grasping ignorance so many times. It was just in a different way. It's like what Geshe-la said about this is a progressive process of internalization. So I had another little step forward, I think, in thinking about this because I thought what I'm thinking toward him is, how could you be so inconsiderate of me without any thought at all? about whether I'm being inconsiderate toward him, because I'm not considering him at all in that moment. And that colors, everything's been colored by this belief that I should not ever be inconvenienced. And so then, you know, my efforts to justify my anger or, you know, I explain to him how inconsiderate he's being. And then we get into the debate about um, who's right. Because the most important question at that time is, do I want to be right or do I, we want to be kind and considerate toward others? And we both decide we want to be right. <laughs> great example, and they don't have to be dramatic. In fact, it happens throughout the day so many times. Yeah, and thanks for sharing how you're working with it. I suppose if he said, excuse me, honey, I'm having a heart attack, you would probably drop what you're doing. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I'll get back to you at one this afternoon. <laughs> So Venerable, in her wisdom, of course, has thought about this topic a lot, and then she asks these obvious questions. They're just obvious questions we can ask ourselves throughout the day. You know, is anger good for my health? We know it's not. You read about all that stuff. I don't need to read that to you. Does anger make our mind happy? Does it get us further along the path? Does anger subdue our own afflictions? Does it give us a long life? Does it make you have a better rebirth? Does it ensure that you're going to meet the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha in future lives? Yikes. So obviously the, ans the answers are obvious to all those questions. And it's so amazing to me that I keep forgetting all of those disadvantages. Okay, verse 41. If I become angry with the wielder, although I am actually harmed by the stick, then since the perpetrator too is secondary, 
being in turn incited by hatred, I should really be angry with the hatred instead. This is a hard one, I think. Now, the logic is very clear. It's not difficult logic at all to get. But in the moment, wow, it's hard. So the way to keep going at this is, of course, on the cushion. You can't do it when somebody, you know, does whatever they do in the moment. But just to think, you know, okay, obviously, if someone goes and hits me with a stick, obviously, I'm not going to get angry at the stick. I'm going to get really mad at that person. But with, you know, the Dharma wisdom, what we should really be angry with is the person who's hitting with the stick, that person's afflictions. That person in that moment is afflicted. They're overwhelmed. They're doing something that is harmful. They're swept up in it. And so I should be thinking, okay, if I'm going to be angry, because I am angry, I can be angry at the afflicted mental state of that person. Geshe Yeshe Tobden has written a commentary on the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And he has this words about this verse. When someone harms us, we must think that every suffering and difficulty we encounter is due to the fact that in our current life or a former life, we created the causes through injuring others and that we are in this way not only experiencing the effects of these actions, but we're also purifying and exhausting that negative karma. So as a Dharma practitioner, you would have that training to think that way, to turn this incident into purification. So it's not so often that we get hit by sticks, I hope. It can happen, I suppose. But what's more often is when we hear words that we don't like. So someone says something critical, or we interpret the words to be critical. And so, do we get mad at those sound waves? No, of course not. We get furious with the person who utters those words. And again, you know what? What Shantideva is showing us is that, you know, when we're calm again, we're sitting and thinking about the incident or meditation or we're just sitting quietly, we just have to think, you know, that person said those things. First of all, am I totally sure they were meaning to be harmful? Am I 100% certain about that? And if it was clearly, like, everyone in the world would agree with me, these were insulting, denigrating words, then again, why be angry at the words? Why not have compassion for the person speaking those words? Again, they're overcome by afflicted mental states. They're in a miserable state. They're suffering. And out of that state, they say those things. And it might be jealousy. It might be their own hatred for us. Who knows? It doesn't really matter. But in that moment, they're creating negative karma. And then again, the advice comes, you know, we're wanting to train in this bodhisattva path. 
So how about if we tried having some understanding about how easy it is to be overpowered? It's so easy to be swept up in a negative reaction. We know this one. Now, don't we expect everyone around us to have some compassion for us and understanding when we're swept up? And can't I do that for others as well? And the other thing that eventually can be hilarious, but at first it isn't, is that in the moment, of course, when we're swept up and we're feeling really angry or whatever it is, in that, in those moments, have you found that that's the only thing we can choose to think about? There's no options. And besides, this is the right option. It is my reaction. It's my reality. This is appropriate, given what they just said. There's no options. We're just locked in. So over the past two years, I think it's been happening more in the past years than other years, but maybe I'm just noticing it now. But Venerable and her teaching at some point will have a conversation with herself. And she says for us to do the same thing. Have a conversation with yourself. You know, take apart a situation that was difficult. So here you've got the sane self. And over here you've got the crazy, out of control, angry or whatever it is, afflicted self. And you have a conversation with that self. And so... I have to have a script for this one. It is based on truth. It's based on my story, which I think you'll agree with. You better. And I can't do it spontaneously like she can. So I'll just rely on this. So all we have to do in this conversation with ourselves is the sane self listens and responds with yes. And why be angry? Okay, here's the background. This is before COVID, and I decided that I had better get a Washington State driver's license. And uh, I knew that one of our Canadian monastics had done the very same thing, and she went to the place in Newport, and she handed over her British Columbia driver's license. No problem. They asked her for some money. She gave them $89 or whatever it was, and she got a Washington State driver's license. Simple. So I went to the little branch in Newport with that very idea of what was exactly going to happen. And I got there late. This place does this service in Newport once a week for half a day. You have to get there at the crack of dawn to really get some service happening. And that day there was a teaching here. So I went after the teaching, so I'm getting there way late. But this is the day I was going to do it. It was our flex day. This is what you do in flex day. So I get there, and the room was completely filled with people, and you have to take this little ticket. So my number was something insane, like 116, you know. And I thought, well, I'm going to just do this because I, it's kind of overdue. And uh, so I get the ticket, and I sit, sit down to this, next to this woman who made room for me. 
And in no time, of course, when you're wearing robes, you're kind of like a neon sign. And this woman was starting to ask me about, you know, what was my religion? And a long, very nice conversation unfolded. She started telling me about her life. And it was a very, she had a lot of tragedies and suffering in it. The time went by. That wasn't the suffering part at all. And then at one point she said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm here to get my Washington State driver's license. And she said, well, I hope you know that you have to have cash. And I said, what? A cash? I have a check. I have debit cards. I've got credit cards. She said, no, you have to have cash. And I said, great. She said, don't worry, dear. I'm going to go to the bank right now, and I'll get you some cash, and you can pay me back when you can. I said, you're kidding me. She said, no, no problem. She said, I'm waiting for my friend. He's got, a, he's got the number 140. So this woman goes out and gets cash and comes back. So then it's my turn, finally. 116 gets called. They're almost closed. And I go up with all my stuff, and I've got proof of where I live, and Alberta driver's license and passport and all this stuff. And I give it to this young girl, and I say, here it is. Here's my cash, and I'd like to get a Washington State driver's license. And she looked at the stuff, and she said, um, one moment, I have to talk to my supervisor. So I thought, okay, no problem. This probably doesn't happen very often. She has to talk to her supervisor. No problem. So she comes back, and she looked very scared. <laughs> I don't think I was looking. I, I didn't get angry in that place. And she said, I'm really sorry. Um, you're not going to... You're not, you can't get a driver's license in this state until you've taken the written test and the driving test. I said, I beg your pardon? I heard her clearly. <laughs> and so she said, you need to have a written test and a driving test. And I said, thank you. I went and thanked the woman. I gave her money back and I invited her to come and visit the Abbey. And I got in the car and then I started getting mad. Oh, yeah. Okay, here we go. This is the crazy one talking. This is ridiculous. Why are the people from British Columbia getting preferential treatment and the rest of Canada is being punished for living in a different province and I have to do all of these steps? This is ridiculous. And the sane person says, sure. It's not fair. But why be angry? because I just wasted three hours of my precious human rebirth <laughs> sitting and waiting to get a driver's license for nothing. Okay, so you spent some time. I guess you kind of forgot that you had a very good connection with the woman in the uh, branch and that she actually went and got you some cash. Why be angry? I have been driving since the age of 10. <laughs> I have been driving, this is true, I've been driving illegally a lot. <laughs> I don't need to take either one of these tests. Now, this is what you don't hear the same person say, wow, there's a lot of arrogance going on there. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, you've been driving a long time. You've got a lot of experience. <laughs> illegally. Yeah. You know? And you don't feel it's necessary to take these tests, so why be angry? 
because now I have to waste more time studying for the knowledge test, and that's going to have that's going to take up time I would have used studying the Dharma. Okay, so you have to do something else other than study the Dharma, not to mention that you read the news. But <laughs> so why be angry? Okay, why am I going to be angry? Because I'm going to be the only person in that room over the age of 14 who's taking this darn test. Yes, there's a very good chance you'll be the oldest one there. Why be angry? Well, if I don't put in the time to study for this test, because I really don't feel like it and I don't need to, I've been driving since the age of 10, then it'll be so embarrassing if I fail it and I'll have to come back to the Abbey and tell them I took this stupid test and I failed and all those 14-year-olds passed. Yes, it'll be very uncomfortable if you fail that test. Why be angry? Well, and then I have no idea who's going to be the driving teacher. So, you know, when it's time to take that test, they may have some biases that they're just biased against me in particular. And they're going to decide they're going to flunk me the first time just so I learn something. It's possible that they'll be like that. And you'll fail. Why be angry? Because then I'll have to pay more money. Everything I do here, that written test costs money, the driving test costs money. Every time you take those tests, it costs more money, and I could be putting that money to the Buddha hall. <laughs> yes, this whole thing is going to cost you money. Why be angry? Okay, if I fail the driver's test, and I have to come back and tell the community that even though I've been driving illegally most of my life, <laughs> my reputation is going to be ruined. It's totally ruined for the rest of my life. An illegal Washington State driver. This is possible, but why be angry? So what we do, when we talk to ourselves like this, is eventually, hopefully, we wear down that angry, angry mind. And then there's, there's no answer to, you can't give a good argument for why be angry. You can't if you're going to be sane and reasonable. Okay. Oh, as a postscript, it was a very good thing to study that test, to study for the test. There were all kinds of things I actually didn't know. And then the thing that actually blew my mind that makes me angry, in this state, you have to know how to drive backwards around a corner. Now, I took a driving test, and I really am glad I did that, too. And the guy was very friendly. And he taught me some things I kind of forgot. But in this state, and he said it's not in all states, it's not in Canada, I can tell you that. You have to drive backwards around a corner into a busy street. Now, does that make sense to you? Just talking about makes me angry, so I better move on here. That makes no sense whatsoever. Okay. Verse 42. Previously, I must have caused similar harm to other sentient beings. Therefore, it is right for this harm to be returned to me who caused injury to others. Ooh. 
So basically what Shantideva is saying is that what comes around goes around. And Venerable Children, when she was talking about this verse, gave the example of, you know, it's called the boomerang effect. Well, I don't know about you, but as kids we would often, well, not often, every now and then we'd get a boomerang, but it was a tourist boomerang. I don't know if you ever tried to throw a boomerang. It's a myth. The ones we had, maybe they weren't <laughs> built properly. We didn't know how to throw them. We often ended up hitting neighbors' cars, <laughs> neighbors' windows, you know, the dog next door. <laughs> uh, it didn't really come back. But there's no doubt about the fact, karmically, that whatever we dish out is going to come back unless we really purify it and uh, lessen it. And so the one place to look at this is to look at the way that I have the um, ability to criticize others. So it can be for anything, you know, this ongoing dialogue in the head that's going, and it's, you know, the senses are firing, I see something I don't like, I hear something I don't like, I smell something I don't like, I taste something I don't like, all of that, it's all going all the time. And the question that we need to ask ourselves that helps really get our, gets my attention is, you know, if I look in the past week or month even, or six months, that might be even better, the number of times I've been criticized compared to the number of times that I criticize others are they equal? It's kind of not equal at all. And do we track the number of times that we criticize others? Do we track that? Heck no. Do we track the number of times we've been criticized and by whom? Oh, yeah. You know, if we live to be 102, there might be some memory loss about other things, but there won't, there won't be memory loss about that. <laughs> so as Venable says, and this is true for me, it may be true for you, I've criticized people in the past, I've insulted them, I've talked behind their back, I've created disharmony in relationships. I've done all those other things that are critical thinking things. And so why in the world would I be surprised when they do the same thing to me? Why are we surprised? If you've heard teachings on karma, and even if you haven't heard teachings on karma, in certain situations we know immediately there's going to be a negative impact that can also trigger the other person. They're going to give back what we just dished out. That's just it's in our experience. So in the book Good Karma, written by Venerable Children, which is a commentary on the Wheel of Sharp Weapons, verse 13 says, When unpleasant words reach my ears, it is the weapon of destructive karma turning upon me. For my verbal offenses, such as divisive speech, from now on I will condemn flawed speech, 
So, again, if we look in our experience and we pay attention to that chattering mind that is afflicted, that is dishing out the criticism, it's going out, and of course, that eventually when the causes and conditions are there, we will experience the ripening effects of those things that we've done. We are the author of our experience in all ways. Okay, time for some more brave people. So when you think about the past week, could be the past month, past year, but how many times you've mentally criticized others. Maybe you didn't even say a word. And how many times you've been criticized, what conclusions can you come to when you look at this vast difference in frequency? Any thoughts on this one? Maybe it's just so evident we just don't need to say anything more about it. Thank you, Venerable Nawang. Yes, I'll admit, I criticize others a lot mentally. Um, and what I've seen is that I interpret words as criticism because of how much I have this habit of criticizing others, even if they don't mean it as criticism, but I take it that way. Excellent observation. Something for all of us to think about. And look at the mental space that this kind of thinking takes up. That's shocking on its own. And to see the misery that it brings to our mind when we're in that mode and how it blocks our all of our aspirations. And so when when we start thinking about the ways we've thought in that way, we can sort of veer into guilt and beating ourselves up and really getting down on ourselves because the frequency of it is pretty frequent. And so Venerable Trojan's advice at this point when our mind goes in that direction is just to say, you know, don't blame yourself for your mistakes. Blame the afflictions and ignorance. That's what's to blame. And when we take that approach, then we have more energy to work on the afflictions and to apply the antidotes and to be on guard for them arising. And then to think, okay, so when things like this come around and I'm the recipient, okay, I'm purifying karma that I've created in the past. And if it's a case where someone's really bent out of shape and they're just dumping on us, then we know, okay, fantastic. This is how I look when I do that. So there's another question that I put in here. And then again, this is advice for Venerable Children on what to do in our meditation, but also to even maybe share a bit right now. Is that, um, you know, if we think about the things that we cherish in life, 
And what's conducive to bringing those things about as spiritual practitioners? First of all, what is it that you cherish? And what is antithetical to the things that we cherish in our spiritual practice? You're missing the point here, but what I've been thinking about while you've been talking is something I've been getting in touch with lately um, with the situation I described, but also with, like, say, our friend Julie, Julia, who's in Ukraine, and how many of the people in Ukraine right now have a lot of hatred that's rampant because of their situation. And I think it's the thing, what I find fruitful in all of this is to become aware of the fear that underlies anger. Mm. And the cherry, what I do cherish that is threatened by the other people's behavior. For example, the people in Ukraine probably cherish their families, their homes, a stable life. And this is completely devastated at this point, and so many people fall to hatred. What I was, what I was witnessing was, I feel like, you know, my mother is vulnerable. She's old and vulnerable, and both her and many people that are sucked in by this media, it actually threatens our, our democracy and our nation, and it threatens families. I mean, there is a lot of harm. So that, that part, I think, is there, but I think unless you get, can go beneath the anger to the fear and also see that that is related also to attachment, you know, like the more you're attached to something, the more you're going to be angry. And I, for my, me personally, I have to like deconstruct this whole thing to have any chance of undermining the anger, you know, because there are things that are worth cherishing in there, right? But what do we mean by cherishing? You know what I mean? The attachment part and how that messes things up, I think, is what leads to the fear that leads to the anger. And so I think that it's very, in, in situations that are very intense or very long-standing or have dramatic consequences, I, I think it, you know, it means that we do, we're going to have a harder time, obviously, mm -hmm. and we have to, we, we risk losing everything, actually, by not being able to deconstruct these things. Like, for me, personally, I didn't have trouble with my mom. It doesn't, I never let this get in the way of our relationship, because I was, I knew before I was going, I was going to have, this was an issue. Um, but I didn't realize what it would be like, you know. So I think that, I think that there, there's a lot that we risk losing. And so there's no other choice, really, but to use the Dharma tools and other, you know, things that are help us uh, work with these things. Thank you. Very valuable. So it's a question that maybe you can just reflect on and just, you know, really see, you know, the Dharma is what's precious to me. What intercepts that? My afflicted mental states. Were you going to say something? No. Did you want us to stop now? <laughs> okay. So, Venerable Nawang may be leading the next review next week if Venerable's still resting. 
Uh, we only got to verse 42. So I thought we'd finish up with a meditation that I'll lead right now on anger as a way of closing this. And this is a passage from Working with Anger by Venerable Children. So we can get into our meditation posture. So as we reflect on these um, statements, the topic that we're going to spend some time with in the next few minutes is the question, is anger accurate in its assessment of reality? Anger is inaccurate in its assessment of reality by definition because it's based on exaggeration or superimposition of negative qualities. However, when we're angry, we don't feel that we're exaggerating or superimposing anything. We feel that we're right. In fact, the angry mind seems to be very clear. I'm right. You're wrong. You need to change. Bring to mind a situation from the past where you've had that kind of thinking and feeling happening. I'm right. You're wrong. You need to change. When we're angry, the anger is just what is at that moment. Telling ourselves we shouldn't be angry doesn't work, for the anger is already there. Nevertheless, we should neither ignore the anger nor indulge in it. So in the situation you just brought to mind, how could you, if you could replay that situation, what would you do differently to bring a different result?
And in conclusion, the real questions to ask ourselves are, do I want to cultivate my anger or subdue it? Does anger promote happiness or not? Does it allow me to get closer to what I cherish in this life? Practicing the Dharma, getting closer to the holy beings, to other living beings? Does it ensure a good rebirth? And so let's rejoice that we're learning ways of dealing with the mind where we can start wearing down the habitual tendency to become angry and instead to grow our qualities, our good qualities, allowing us to experience compassion for others love, warmth, and to continue to grow our wisdom. And eventually, with sincere, unwavering practice, the wish to become a Buddha can take place.